Holy Father, what a prayer, waking or sleeping. If, you, if Your presence would be the light of our lives, that would be enough. Well, here we are a hundred years later. What a journey. You've been here every step of the way. We know. We know. We need You for the journey that's ahead. But we can't go ahead unless our hearts are released and set free. And so, dear God, these few moments we have here, be the vision of our hearts right now. Make this a saving place, I pray. That would be enough. That's enough. Because our hearts are pinned on another homecoming. That's the one we don't want to miss. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I am right now reading a marvelous, inspiring, I'm going to have to call it an inspired book. If I had enough money, I tell you the truth, I would buy this book for every human being on the planet. It's true. It's a wonderful book. John Ortberg is the author. There's a whole sermon in the title of the book, The Life You've Always Wanted. The Life You've Always Wanted. Well, I'm just a couple chapters away from finishing the book. In the book, Ortberg tells the story of Charles Steinmetz. Probably never heard of Steinmetz, but he was a genius of an electrical engineer. And we've got engineers in our midst today. Steinmetz worked for GE back at the turn of the last century. Okay? He retired. Went off into an... That life of ease that some of you have already found, so they say. But as it would happen, one day in that plant at General Electric, the engineers who had taken Steinmetz's place, utterly perplexed because in a new complex of machines, something has broken down. They don't know what it is. They've checked every angle on this, on this conundrum. Something's wrong. And finally, they break down. We're going to have to call Steinmetz back. You know, you have to eat a little humble pie to call the great one back. Well, they did. Steinmetz spent several minutes circling the machines. Finally, he reached into his pocket, pulled out a piece of chalk, put a cross mark on one particular piece of one particular machine. The dumbfounded amazement of those engineers when they disassembled that part of the machine, it turned out to be the precise location, hallelujah, of the breakdown. A few days later, the engineers received a bill from Steinmetz for his services. They tore the envelope open. They could not believe their eyes. Ten thousand dollars. I've got to tell you, at the turn of the century, a century ago, that is a staggering amount of money. What are we going to do with this? $10,000. They finally said, listen, send it back to him. Let's, let's ask for an itemized bill. So they send it back to him. And after a few more days, they received a second itemized bill with just two lines on it. Making one cross, one dollar. Knowing where to put it, $9,999. <laughs> Smart man. Smart 
man, because ladies and gentlemen, knowing where to put the mark makes all the difference in the world. A hundred years ago, oh boy, they knew where to put the mark. A hundred years ago, on that glorious May afternoon in 1901, by the way, just a century from, from next month, Percy McGann started out as a physician, then became a minister, ended up a professor at Battle Creek College. Percy McGann, standing on this fertile piece of springtime farmland here on the banks of the St. Joseph, something in his heart, and I believe it was God Himself, something in his heart tells him, this is where you put the mark, right here. He fell in love with these 272 wooded acres, strolled them. It would be the perfect place upon which to bring Battle Creek College. This is it. And hallelujah, the farmer is in a selling mood. All Percy needed was $18,000, which as it turns out now is all you need today to go to Andrews for a single year. <laughs> Come to think of it, a hundred years ago, a hundred years ago, you could have bought the whole school and given yourself an honorary doctorate in every field. Hallelujah. What a deal. All Percy needed was $18,000, and all Percy had was a crumpled, wrinkled $5 bill. But as history now tells us, with a handshake and $5 down, this campus was purchased a century ago. You can't even get a meal in the cafeteria for $5 anymore. One hundred years ago, they knew where to place the mark, and the rest is history. Of course it is, the proud history of Emmanuel Missionary College and Andrews University. So, here's the question. Where would you put the mark? Where would we put the mark? We who have gathered to commemorate a century of life and education and service upon this hallowed piece of terra firma. Where would we put the mark? For a dollar, you can put it about anywhere you wish. But remember, it'll cost you $9,999 to find the right someone who will put the mark in the right place. Which makes you wonder, where would God put the mark today? I'm not talking about this institution right now. I love this institution. My privilege to be graduated twice here. I said it didn't take the first time. Come back, try it over, try it. And it's been an honor for me to serve these years on this campus. This is, of, of, all, of all campuses and universities, schools in the world, this is the most beloved in my own heart. But I don't, I'm not talking about the institution. You love it. You love it. I love it. I'm thinking about the individuals of old EMC and new AU. Where would God put the mark? And the thousands and thousands of young men and young women who have journeyed through these halls of ivy and then marched out of this place and peopled the earth and served humanity. And some of them have even come back in the form of you. I'm thinking of us as alumni. Where would God put the mark? If He could put a mark today, where would He put it? There's a solitary, soul-stirring, dusty, ancient line that we must share on this centennial of our campus. I'd like you to open your Bible, please, to the old, old book of Jeremiah, chapter 31. Jeremiah 31. I need to alert you as you're finding Jeremiah 31. You, the word you are about to read has been written to a, to a vagabond bunch 
of homesick, homeless exiles. They are miles and miles. They are far, far away from home. It is imperative that you and I read these words because we're not home yet either. No, sir. No, ma'am. We are not home yet. We are exiles. Walter Brueggemann, that Old Testament scholar and author, in his provocative book, Cadences of Home, Preaching Among Exiles, from whence today's title was adapted, Walter Brueggemann is absolutely right. We are an, ex an exilic community. We are in exile, Christianity today. Certainly Adventism is in exile today. We're, we, we are not home. And that's why Brueggemann says every time we pick this book up, we need to hear, we need to sense the rhythm, the cadences of a home we have yet to return to. Frederick Beekner, who has one of the great, great gifts of articulate communication, Beekner, in that book of his, The Longing for Home, Recollections and Reflections, he describes this homelessness, this sense of homelessness that, that we today on this planet live with. I'll put Beekner's words on the screen. Take a look at this. No matter how much the world shatters us to pieces, we carry in us, inside us, a vision of wholeness that we sense is our true home and that beckons to us. Joy is what we belong to. Joy is home. And I believe, he confesses, the tears that come to our eyes are more than anything else homesick tears. Those are the tears that we feel today. When your eyes well up, when your heart is moved, it's a homesickness that is tugging at your soul. You're not home yet, boy. You're not home yet, girl. You don't belong here. There's another home for you. Beekner is right. To be homeless the way people like you and me are apt to be homeless is to have homes all over the place, as some of us do, but not to be really at home in any of them. For to be really Home is to be really at peace. And our lives are so intricately woven that there can be no real peace for any of us until there is real peace for all of us. And so for exiles today, we've come home for a few hours, but we know we are not home. For exiles today who hunger for peace and who long for home comes this homesick word, to a whole community of exiles, they were in Babylon, we are in Berrien. Let's read it here, Jeremiah 31, verse 2. Thus says the Lord, I love this line. Thus, uh, this is the New Revised Standard Version, by the way. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword, read exiles, the exiles found grace in the wilderness. Isn't that something? I love that line. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. What a line. Grace in the wilderness. What a moving promise for a wandering people who are still in exile. Grace in the wilderness. For a people broken, a people beaten. People battered into surviving. You know what? I, I look around at our well-manicured faces and we haven't done too bad. As alumni of this institution, students here, I look in the parking lots, they're not doing too bad either. But I look at our well-manicured faces and I realize there, Dwight, there isn't a man here, there isn't a woman here who hasn't been beaten and battered by this business of trying to live without a home on this planet. We are all survivors. We are survivors. Speaks about survivors. We are survivors. Barely some of us. 
barely hanging on today, but we are surviving. Of course, CBS, bless their souls, has decided to capitalize on the reality that we are all driven by this survivor mentality. CBS television, what does the matter with these guys, huh? Have you noticed they are milking the mother load out of the survivor competition business to ad nauseum max, which being interpreted means they are seizing every moment to make another buck off of a gullible American public. I mean, how many more of these survivors are they going to have? I was watching a CBS early morning show this week. I said, oh, well, this weekend we're going to find out. I wouldn't waste a second finding out. I don't care who survived. Trying to make it a national story. Survivor one, survivor two, survivor three. How many of these? We, how many is this civilization supposed to survive of these things? You know what I think? Since you brought it up, you know what I think? <laughs> I think that what they ought to do is put them all in an igloo up north and let them duke it out on the ice. That way you get the whole show over in a single episode. Everybody loses them. Bring them home. Very clever of CBS to capitalize on this drive, this mentality to survive. Because let's be honest, come on, we're all survivors. Nobody wants to lose. Nobody wants to get voted out of the tribal council. Nobody wants to come across as, a, as, as anything less than a winner. Everybody wants to come across on top. Which is why some of us spend so much energy trying to make ourselves look like we are winners. Especially at alumni homecoming gatherings. And when we're asked about our careers, and we're asked about our marriages, and we're asked about our accomplishments, we're asked about our children, we're asked about our lives, we scramble internally. We scramble to put the very best face possible on it. Well, I'm so glad you asked. I was ready to tell you. Thank you so much. I have lived the greatest life I've ever lived in my life. Well, you can about say that anytime, anywhere, and be safe. In fact, the, the sad truth is, my dear friends, that we are all marooned on what Eugene Peterson has called, and I like this, he calls it an island, a capital island. Where all of us survivors marooned on an island where self is hopelessly trapped and where ego frantically struggles to survive. There is no peace on that island, but oh, how we long to survive. There's a word to survivors. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness, grace in the wilderness of the island for all of us. But I want to ask you a question, because if we don't answer this, if we, I mean, if we don't know the answer, there's, we can just stop right here. Do we even know the meaning of this grace? What kind of grace is what is this thing called grace that we've just read about? What is this? Do we know it at all? W.H. Auden, the Anglo-American poet at Oxford of the last century, in a moving description of grace, put it this way, and I'll put it on the screen for you. I know nothing. I don't know anything. I don't know anything. I know nothing. Except what everyone knows. If there, when grace dances, I should dance. He said, I don't know much. He's just musing to himself. I don't know much, but this much I do know. When grace walks through the door of my heart and begins to dance, I'm going to dance. I'm going to dance. Because no matter how you define grace, it is always music to dance to. Always music to dance to. 
Now, I suppose I should apologize right about here because Emmanuel Missionary College being what it was, no dancing, only marching. And Andrews University being what it is, no dancing or marching. I suppose it's... It is inappropriate to even use the metaphor of dancing to describe grace at all. I would not do it at all if God hadn't already done it himself. The metaphor isn't mine. It's God's. God introduces grace in verse 2. And then look, take a look at this. Look what follows. I'll just read the whole piece, 2 to 4. Thus says the Lord, who sur- Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. When Israel sought for rest, the Lord appeared to him from far away. God speaking now, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. The old King James reads, therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn you. You remember those words? With loving kindness have I drawn you. Verse 4, God's still speaking. Again, I will build you and you shall be built. O virgin Israel, again, hold on now, again, you shall take your tambourines and go forth in the dance of the merrymakers. End quote. Did you get that? Wait a minute, is that really in the Bible? Let's check this out. Surprisingly, most translations translate the way I just read it. And you shall go forth in the dance of the merrymakers. Because when grace walks through the door... You really can be this happy. When grace comes dancing into your life, you really can be this glad. You can go out, go forth in the dance of the merrymakers. Alden writes, I know nothing except that everyone know, except what everyone knows. If there, when grace dances, I should dance. If grace ever comes into my life. I'm going to dance. That much I know. So what's the dance of grace, see? What is this dance of grace? I'm telling you, get ready for the greatest news any survivor and any exile could ever receive. You're going to get it right now. God's going to make sure you get it right here. Because God tells us what grace is. He doesn't leave us to wonder the tune and the music to dance to. Go towards the end of the chapter. Take a look at this, will you? Hallelujah. Verse 33. But this is the covenant, God is speaking still, that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, Hey, you know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. Now, here it comes. Want to know what grace is? Here it comes. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. My dear friends, for a a company of exiles, the news cannot possibly get any better than that. I will forget. I will forgive your sin and remember your iniquity. No more, no more, no more, no more. When I come to God, oh boy, I hope you get this. When I come to God, I must not forget. God's grace does not remember what I ask Him to forget. It's grace. God's grace 
does not remember what I ask him to forgive. He just, you just read his words, for I will forgive your iniquity and remember your sin no more. What sin are you talking about, God? Boy, I mean, any sin you bring to me, I will. You bring it to me, I will remember it no more. That's called grace. How can it be? First John, First John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. That's how it can be. How does it really happen? Revelation 1, 5, unto Him who loved us and has freed us from our sins by His blood. Ladies and gentlemen, because of Calvary's forgiving, we are assured of God's forgetting. That's grace. You know, we hear the word so much. We heard it when we were here on campus. We hear it in the journey. We forget that grace is music to dance to. And because we aren't dancing to it, we haven't heard the grace yet. Or we've forgotten long ago. Grace. No matter how I lived as a student when I was here, and some of you are really hoping those memories won't get revisited. And no matter how I've lived subsequently as an alumnus out there, when I come to God this much, I must not forget. God's grace does not remember what I ask Him to forget. I will forgive your iniquity and remember your sin no more. And for those of you who are tempted right now to conclude that grace is just playing a foolish little game with us, this silly little dance that will eventually end, I want to conclude with two stories. Two stories. Now, one story, as it turns out, I shared the last time you and I were together, two weeks ago, Easter Sabbath. I've never done this before, revisited a story. It's such a moving story, I don't mind sharing it over again. The alumni haven't heard the story. And there's some who did hear the story and said, you know what, that's, that's a nice little, whoo, that's a parable, it can't be true. But I'm going to tell the second story right after the first one. And the second story incontrovertibly proves that the first story was true all along. Here's the first story. First story is remembered by Brennan Manning in his surprising book, Ragamuffin Gospel. There's a woman somewhere, he said, he, in fact, he even says it in the book. Perhaps you heard this story. I had never heard it before. He said there was a woman somewhere out west in the United States who began having visions of Jesus. A Roman Catholic woman. Archbishop heard about it. One must be as a spiritual leader on guard against the lunatic fringe. And so the archbishop summoned her. He said, what is this? Are you really seeing Jesus? She said, I'm, I am. I am. Bishop. He said. The next time you see Jesus, I want you to do this. You ask him what it was I confessed to him in my last confession. The woman was aghast. She said, you want me to ask Jesus, to tell me all your sins? Yep, that's what I want. All right, Bishop. She goes home. Ten days later, she calls the residence. Have you had another vision from Jesus? Yes, I have. I'll be right over. He went over, leaned forward, squinted his eyes. Did you do what I asked you to do? Yes, she did. She said, I asked Jesus to tell me all the sins you last confessed. All right, he said. What did he say? And the woman leaned over and took his hands in hers. And she said, Bishop, these are his actual words. He said, I don't remember. 
And a whole lot of us, when we heard that story, said, well, nice little homiletical device. Not true. For all the skeptics bred on this campus. A second story. I want to end with this story. Everybody knows this story. We love it. It's a springtime evening. As glorious as the twilight we're going to have tonight, only it's 3,000 years ago. All the soldiers are at war. They're fighting the enemy. The king is sick and tired of war. He's not going to fight in this battle. So the king stays home, not knowing that the real enemy is going to ambush this king in the bitterest of wars, the worst war of all. He thought he'd stay away from the fighting. And so in that deep purple evening, you know the story well, King, good King David at the pinnacle of his leadership career is walking inside the palace parapets, minding his own business. When as the story tells us, David gets too close to the edge and he falls to his mortal wounding. Not a sin, by the way. Is it a sin to walk on the roof? Huh? Is it a sin to take a bath in the privacy of your own backyard where his neighbor's wife was bathing in that twilighted moment? Is that a sin? Nope. fact of the matter is, you know it well, the difference between David and Joseph, both men face the same, the identical temptation. Difference between David and Joseph, Joseph fled. David fed. And it's when you feed that you are dead meat. And so David fell after he fed. And when David falls, like a, like, a, like a chain of dominoes, all ten of the Ten Commandments collapse. Just like that. What does he do? Number one, he covets his neighbor's wife, breaks the Ten Commandment. Number two, gets her pregnant, breaks the Seventh Commandment. Number three, kills her husband, breaks the Sixth Commandment. Number four, steals the deceased husband's wife, breaks the Eighth Commandment. Number five, he lives a lie before his people, breaks the Ninth Commandment. And when he's through the heinous crime, he's broken them all. All. Every commandment. And he's living with his dirty little sin because nobody knows. No. Hallelujah. Nobody knows. Until that day, Nathan, a village prophet, comes striding into the throne. He said, you, out, save the king. The whole room empties except for the king. Nathan stands in front of the king and stares into those fallen eyes. And Nathan announces, you're the man. You're the man. And David now knows that that ugly little secret is known by the one person in the universe he has loved the most. And David sobs. And he sobs. And he sobs. And when he's through crying, he grabs a pen and he composes that beautiful penitential prayer in Psalm 51. You know the prayer. It is a gem of repentance. Psalm 51, in fact, I put the words on the screen. I predict you can recite these words by memory. Do it out loud with me. David prays to God, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. We all know 
the sad, sad story of our beloved David. There isn't a person on earth who doesn't love David. But you know what I never knew? He said, oh boy, I already knew that story. You know what I never knew? I never knew how the story ended until this last fall. And I've never shared it with the congregation. I've been waiting for a moment and this seems the right one. I found it last fall. How could I have read 1 Kings all these years and never caught the line? The ending to the story. It proves that that woman with visions was right. It proves. I want to share it with you. I sit down. First Kings, take a look at this. Probably unmarked, just sitting there begging you to mark it at last. First Kings chapter 14. Take a look. Would you please look at this? First Kings 14. Another king has fallen. This is Jeroboam. God is getting word to Jeroboam about his fall and God is speaking. All right. This is first Kings chapter 14, verse seven. Go tell Jeroboam, God says to the prophet, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you a leader over my people, Israel, and tore the kingdom away from the house of David to give it to you. Yet, Jeroboam, what is the matter for you? Yet. You have not been like my servant David. Hold on, folks. This is phenomenal. You have not been like my servant David, who kept my commandments. What is this? What do you got? Divine Alzheimer's. What do you mean he kept your commandments? He broke every single one of them. Every single one of them David broke. And you're saying, Jeroboam, I wish you could be like my friend David, who kept my commandments. God says, I'm not through. Don't interrupt me. Who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart. What is wrong with this picture? All his heart. He gave his heart to his neighbor's wife. He never followed you with all his heart all his life. God said, hold I'm not through. Who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart. Put your seatbelt on. Doing only, only that which was right in my sight. Do you get it? Do you see it? When God, David is dead and gone. He's buried. But when God recalls the life of David, I can't remember I can't remember. David. Oh, yeah, I'm glad you brought up David. My man, David, who kept all my commandments, who followed me with all his heart, who only... Yeah, that's my boy, David, who only did what was right. Ladies and gentlemen, what do you call this? You call this G-R-A-C-E. It's called grace. You can come to the end of your life and live a rotten, good-for-nothing experience. And you cry out to this same Jesus, the son of David, who died on Calvary for that sin, those sins, just like that. Uh, I, I can't remember. Grace. It's no wonder. Go forth and dance. The dance of the merrymakers. I wish you'd circle that text a thousand times. I wish you'd use every crayon in your box. That's the gospel. That's the everlasting gospel. What this university was raised up, those three angels that streak across the last midnight heaven, at the heart of it is a story about a God with grace just like this. It's good news. And by the way, some of you are facing death. You don't know it. Some of you know it. 
This is wonderful news by which to die. We're all facing the judgment, ladies and gentlemen. This is glorious and glad tidings by which to enter the judgment. You go in the name of the Son of David, and I'm telling you, I, I, I can't remember. So, way, I, way I figured it out, she, she, she only did what was right. What a woman, what a woman, bring her home. Bring her to that homecoming. She only did what was right. He only did what was right. Kept all my commandments, follow me with all his heart. What kind of a God is this? His name is Grace. His name is Grace. Steps to Christ. You need one more piece of confirmation, I know. Steps to Christ, page 62. Could it be any clearer? If you give yourself to Him and accept Him as your Savior, then sinful as your life may have been, Christ's character stands in place of your character and you are accepted before God just as if you had not sinned, period. It's spelled G-R-A-C-E. Anybody living for the last homecoming needs G-R-A-C-E. I don't know much, but this much I know. When you and I come to God, this much we must never forget. God's grace does not remember what I ask Him to forget. Grace knows where to put the mark. For a dollar, you can put the mark anywhere you wish. But for $9,999, it takes someone special to know exactly where in your heart to put that mark. He knows. I'll tell you what, if you and I will bring our hearts to Jesus right now, He will know exactly where to mark His cross. Let us pray. Oh, Jesus. Why haven't we seen this before? Is it too late to dance with the merrymakers? Is it too late for a people who have survived the sword to find grace in the wilderness of this sojourn? Holy Christ, please. Grace for us all today. Right now, we need that grace. And while every head is still bowed in prayer, every heart still lifted up to this gracious God, I cannot sit down, I cannot, without making an appeal, without making a very specific invitation. If there's a man here today, student, alumnus, doesn't matter, just plain visitor or member, if there's a man here today who knows desperately in his heart, he has got to start a new chapter with God. I want to tell you something, sir, it will never be as simple as this moment. Today, please, seize this grace and ask Jesus to rewrite the journey that's ahead. There's a woman here today who knows in her heart of hearts that past has got to be buried. It must be left behind. And I want to come forth clean in Christ. And you need, woman, you need to make a new beginning today. I'm going to invite you to slip out of that pew and come right here to the front. I'd like to pray with you. This is not a call for general rededication. In an, in, in, in an audience this large, there will be some. You need to begin all over again with Jesus.
Nobody knows your name. Nobody knows your story. But Jesus knows. And He's saying, today, I will forgive your iniquity. Today, that whole story, I will remember your past no more. Come to Me today. How many want to join with these who have come forward? Rededicate ourselves to that same grace. You raise a hand. Step into that embrace. Do what comes so easy for us. Raise our hands. Come to the front knowing that Calvary has already thrown wide the door. Hallelujah. What do you say? Hallelujah. Oh God, what can we say? In the face of Calvary's grace, in the face of a God who with one prayer wipes away an entire chapter from our lives. In the presence of this God, that's true. All our hearts can say is hallelujah and amen. Dear Father, I thank you for these men and these women. These who come forward, it's never easy in an audience like this, but they have responded to your call. And I pray, dear God, that you will seal this moment forever and ever in your heart and, and in their hearts. Let this be the beginning of a brand new journey to the homecoming our hopes are still pinned on. And then we raise our hands. We all do because, Jesus, we want to live with the spirit of this grace. If you're that gracious to us, then some of us who just raised our hands... Oh, Christ, teach us how to be that gracious with each other. Bury the past. Once we've, we've tasted of that grace, then at last we can dispense it. So let us dance the dance of the merrymakers. Let us find grace in the wilderness until that day we shall look into the face of the Son of David and with David march through those gates to that homecoming grace yet promises. It is fitting on this alumni Sabbath while we stand in this moment of recommitment that we join together in John Nevins Andrews' great benediction. Lauren Hamill from the class of 76 will lead us. The words will be right up there on the screen. Let us read these words together. And now... As we set forth, we commit ourselves to the merciful protection of God, and we especially ask the prayers of the people of God that his blessing may attend us in this sacred work. Amen.